0: Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at Outsider Theory on Twitter. <laughs> I'm here with Biz Sherbert. Who is a fashion theorist and writer? You can find her at Mark Fisher Quotes on Instagram, Bimbo Theory on TikTok. Anywhere else, people should look for you.
1: You can go on my website, which is sherbert.biz, but Instagram is the best place to see what I am doing.
0: Cool. And you've also written for Document, among other publications, in recent times. Yes, Believe. most
1: mostly document, and then I have some new stuff coming out, which will maybe be published by the time this is being heard.
0: Awesome! So, thanks for coming
1: on. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, so, I as I've been doing, it's it's probably a bad habit, but um, I've been I've been assigning my guests homework. It's it's really <laughs> terrible, but um, anyway, Biz had already read this, but I asked her to have a look at at chapter three of. Baudrillard's uh, Symbolic Exchange and Death from 1976, and uh, this is a book that I'm, as, as anybody who follows me now, is often uh, found quoting from, and it has a, a very interesting chapter called Fashion or the Enchanting Spectacle of the Code, which is an interesting framework for thinking about the, the significance of, of fashion for understanding culture more generally today. So I thought it would be a nice way to uh, start off our conversation and I'll just read a little bit of the, um, the early part of that chapter. And I think it's something that we can, you know, kind of return to probably later on in our conversation, but I'm also just curious to get your take on, on Baudrillard's arguments in this, um, in this chapter more broadly. So the, the quote we'll start out with is, The acceleration of the simple play of signifiers in fashion becomes striking to the point of enchanting us, the enchantment and vertigo of the loss of every system of reference. In this sense, it is the completed form of political economy, the cycle wherein the linearity of the commodity comes to be abolished. There is no longer any determinacy internal to the signs of fashion, hence they become free to commute and permutate without limit. At the limit of this unprecedented enfranchisement, they obey as if logically a mad and meticulous recurrence. Continues a little bit later, fashion is at the core of modernity, extending even into science and revolution because the entire order of modernity from sex to the media, from art to politics is infiltrated by this logic. So to start off perhaps your thoughts on that passage and maybe the the chapter more broadly.
1: Well, I definitely think that the disconnect between signifier and signified is something that we see more and more in fashion, right? Fashion right now, especially with young people. Um, I've been noticing especially recently that a lot of people in like their late teens, early teens, uh, do this thing where they have this, and this is actually just popped up in last season's fashion week as well, the same mode, but it's like mixing crucial elements that, uh, signify like a certain subculture all together into one like i'm just like mashing up every single uh element of a subculture into one look and that is something that is becoming more and more popular um which i think is like essentially the best example of what baudrillard is talking about in this
0: passage absolutely yeah and i hope we'll come back to some of those examples in a little bit, um, I was so I was also thinking about something that Baudrillard discusses, which I think is is in a sense uh, one of the clearest illustrations we can find of this this idea of the sort of unleashing of the signifier as something that can just float freely. Which is that you know if you think through human history and the history of culture, many cultures have you know obviously. Many did not even have like particularly complicated, um, you know, garments or anything like that. But w- once you get to more complex and like urban civilizations, what you often see are these sumptuary laws, which essentially determine based on your social standing, what you're allowed to wear, right? That m- might be particular garments that you have to wear or that you're not allowed to wear. And it might be particular colors that, again, are are either obligatory or banned, depending on your social standing. So, you know, this is an incredibly common feature of of essentially pre-modern cultures, right? Where your social station is relatively fixed and your um, garments are tied direct and thus your self-presentation in public is tied directly to that standing. So, you know, for someone like Baudrillard, this is sort of an an illustration of a, a relatively stable regime of signification because the idea is that there's a signifier, which would be a particular garment, particular color. And then there is the signified, which is the standing or um, social station or status that's associated with that. And that, that those are literally um, sanctioned, right? That, that you, you cannot violate those at, under pain of some sort of punishment. So, you know, in a, in a sort of schematic sense, we could think about this similarly to like the gold standard, um, and the way that once you release currency from the gold standard, it it, it floats freely um, and has no reference to anything outside of itself. So, you know, I think obviously this, you know, the sort of gradual obsolescence of sumptuary laws is a long process that begins. A long time ago, but you know we might think about how the the, the sort of um, the current um, as you were just describing, kind of chaotic realm of, of signification that we that we can witness in in the in the field of fashion is is a sort of um, bellwether of the kind of larger trends of the culture towards this this kind of collapse of shared meanings and of, of shared sort of, um agreed upon you know significations in some way um so i don't know if that you know that's that's a bit um maybe going out on a bit of a limb but i don't know if that that makes sense to you from your from your work
1: well it definitely does i mean something i always try to remind people as much as i can is like um while it's very fun to try to, like, decode the meaning of clothes and stuff, if, like, aesthetics are ultimately hollow devices. So if you put a lot of your, uh, your understanding of yourself and what have you into it, like, you'll ultimately come up high and dry, especially now. Um, and I think that's something that is... It's very difficult to actually apply to your life. Um, but I think... Some something everyone should keep in mind, especially when you feel like a, a lame loser or something, or like you're not dressed cool, or like you're not uh signifying your like alternative
0: values through your clothes. It's just good to take a step back from that stuff. Yeah, and sort of in relation to that, I think you know it's it's an interesting field in part because it's something that um you know everybody has some has some relation to, right um. You 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 can't really step outside you know in the same way you can't step outside of language you can't step outside of the kind of significations that are that are built into our our sort of fashion system as as Bart called it um, and yet you know I think those are often elusive and constantly shifting. So, you know, my understanding is, and I'm not widely read in this field, but, you know, that there's a great deal of, of sort of academic writing that, that comes out of some of these more canonical sort of theory texts. Um, but, and, and there is sort of an academic field dedicated to analyzing these kinds of phenomena. Now, it seems like what you're doing is trying to sort of bring that, that kind of work um, to the people, in a sense, by um, you know disseminating it in, in partly in social media platforms, and um, so I'm I'm curious what your senses of this kind of fashion theory world, maybe that that you um, had some exposures to and training in, but but also how what you're trying to do kind of relates to that.
1: Sure. So I went to fashion school, but I was like a very a lost to confuse student for you know my early years. I ended up majoring in art history at the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is a place where there's like fashion academics. There's like a museum about fashion there. So there's a lot of fashion scholars versus people that teach just, you know, fashion design stuff. So I definitely was able to start thinking critically about fashion while I was there, but it was very much the tail end of my um, university experience, like year four, I guess, and um, and I basically uh, started doing all of this, I guess. Um, I started an account of Instagram account my senior year of college. And I was like, this is going to be my fashion theory account. Um, but it was mostly just a place to collect thoughts and pictures that were significant to me in some way. Um, and I just kept doing it and getting more into it and finding uh, that it was extremely it, it really helped me make sense of the world in a way. Um, and I, I kept doing it. But fashion theory in general, I think, is still pretty uh, behind closed doors. Um, I People often ask me, like, are there a lot of people doing, like, or what other people are doing this, like, what you're doing? And I'm like, there aren't really that many. Because most people that are in fashion theory are, like, in a master's program or in a PhD or they are either vying for or are in a very coveted selective um, academic position or maybe as a curator. So um, what I'm doing is not uh, typical to this field of work, I guess, but because uh, our lives lives are so image-based and I think fashion is a big part of that i think that people are looking for something more from uh the images they see all the time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And as you know, I'm I'm a enthusiast of any kind of outsider theory that's trying to um go outside of those institutional environments. So um i, I think there's a lot of uh a lot of demand and a lot of uh, promise for what you're doing. So thank you. Um but yeah, so Moving on to like a, a particular theme that, you know, from going through a lot of your your work um, seems to be one that you come back to quite a bit is a sort of, um, you know, your, your uh, Instagram handle is Mark Fisher quotes. So here we might think of Fisher's work on hauntology and capitalist realism and the way that um, there's a kind of constant reversion to older forms. So you know th- this kind of retro, um, you know, there's this concept of retromania that someone who's um, uh, somewhat associated with Fisher um, Simon Reynolds wrote a book about. Um, so you know th- there are various uh, ways people have thought about this, but um, you know, kind of going back to some of these like canonical fashion theory texts that I'm that I'm pretty interested in. You know, it's so you have uh, an interesting line from from Roland Barthes, um, uh, fashion system, where he says, uh, every new fashion is a refusal to inherit a subversion against the oppression of the preceding fashion. Fashion experiences itself as a right, the natural right of the present over the past, right? So, so on one hand, I think most people would find that relationship kind of intuitive, but then there's kind of the complicating factor, which is the one that I just brought up, which, which Baudrillard, um, in a In his text, which refers back to Barthes uh, quite a bit, states, um, fashion is always retro, but always on the basis of the abolition of the passé. The spectral death and resurrection of forms, its proper actuality, its up-to-dateness, its relevance, is not a reference to the present, but an immediate and total recycling. Paradoxically, fashion is the inactual, the out-of-date, the irrelevant. So this, and then he um, continues, the enjoyment of fashion is therefore the enjoyment of a spectral and cyclical world of bygone forms endlessly revived as effective signs. So this was written in, again, 1976, but I think it's highly resonant today. Um, so I'm curious how those, you know, those ideas and perhaps Fisher's as well inform your kind of interest in, in the, the constant resurrection and recycling and, and kind of returning to these these past moments.
1: Well, first of all, I think it's very grim um, for the most part, and I feel really bad for young people. Like I said, because they, I think, are experiencing a lot of whiplash as they try to kind of find their like socio political or whatever identity. Um, and a lot of that, I think, for young people, is through trying to find subculture, which is very closely tied to aesthetics um but because the trend cycle is moving so quickly right now um it's so hard for young people to find any sort of stable stabilization there um and I think it makes people I mean it it even makes me sometimes feel really bitter and weird but um I think something I'm really interested in is kind of I've like I use this term a lot, like a latency period um, with fashion trends. And to me, what that means is just like the period in which a certain style is considered unfashionable. Um, And that is getting so much shorter for a lot of reasons. But I think a really good example of that, that is something I've been noticing for the past year or so and is continuing to grow is um, kind of this... I call it, like, millennial core, but it's, like, this renewed aesthetic interest in early 2010s, late 2000s culture and fashion. Um, and that's, like, pretty – I mean, like, I, I've seen videos on TikTok being, like, well, oh, look at this high school in 2014. And that's just insane to think about, like, um, that type of romanticization happening only, like, six, six or so years later um and so i think that very much speaks to this this weird fake renewal and resurrection that is constantly happening in fashion that they both talk about
0: yeah and you said fake there um <laughs> because it's it's interesting right because um i mean you know there I brought this up schematically when we were talking before, but, you know, it seems like we might think about, and if you read the fashion system, right, it's it's very much a kind of top-down model, right, where basically you have these Parisian fashion houses or whatever, and then you have these magazines that are essentially their kind of propaganda tools, right, that are that are sort of disseminating these models to the public and kind of ideologically naturalizing them, but also creating the conditions by which they can then be Overturned and replaced with something else, but here we're we're discussing um you know as you mentioned this kind of you know millennial core fad you know often these are these at least appear to be kind of uh you know people discovering these fragments of some prior moment and then kind of circulating them, and then that sort of catching on virally, but then also potentially being kind of sold back to them by um you know the major Companies, clothing companies. So I don't know how. How do you see that? I mean, you meant. I'm curious what you meant by fake, and also um, just how you see that kind of process.
1: Well, when I say fake, I think that um, like with fashion, there are people that are so early on the onset, which is what we're seeing with this like millennial core thing right now, and there's people that are super late. So it's it's hard to ever um, define the exact lifespan of a trend but i guess that's where the latency period thing comes in handy um something i have been seeing a lot recently that i find very like um like disturbing i guess is a lot of uh you know high fashion designers drawing inspiration from like tiktok users for their couture collections or just whatever they're putting on the runway that season um and that is very, people, like, think it's cool sometimes, but I think it's very uncool for a lot of reasons. One of them, I think, is that, well, like, the they're really drawing inspiration for the most part from, like, e-girl and e-boy style, which is kind of passe at this point. But um, that style is very much a, a reworking of, like, a couple of different uh, subcultural aesthetics from the past in itself so we have like goth and emo and then like 90s grunts and all these things coming together um so i think that it's all just very yeah disorienting and um definitely coming i don't i don't think coming trends coming from the bottom is an indication of like fashion being democratized i guess i think it just means that uh, multinational conglomerates that run high fashion companies have realized that they, if they pay attention to what teenagers are doing online, they can get like some very sharp data, basically.
0: Right, and I mean, it seems like there was always, you know, that this isn't like a totally new phenomenon. It's probably more the the rapidity with which it occurs, mm-hmm. and also, I guess, the way that you know, what's interesting is that these trends, which themselves might have been kind of artificially created in the first place in some sense, right, that that might have come out of, you know, marketing that was occurring in the 90s, or um, then kind of picked up in a seemingly spontaneous way by someone today and, and regarded as, as cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the cycle kind of seems like it can go back and forth <laughs> over and over again.
1: Yeah, and I think it's interesting when we think about, like, online uh, fashion and digital fashion, which is something I'm very interested in, because, like, um, the way that alternative fashion is uh, coalescing is so well defined. It's like, you can, everything is attributed to a hashtag, like, everything has a uh, core at the end, so, like, cottage core very core literally every single you can imagine um and then there's also such defined aesthetic like attributes that um, it becomes very easy for anyone who's trying to produce clothing to tap into that which i think in the past i don't know because i'm not that old but like i think that you know there had to be some sort of recon back in the day, if you are trying to figure out what, like, young, I even remember, actually, I remember this from, I, uh, Urban Outfitters is based in Philly, and I remember that they used to send people to parties in Philly to see, like, what people were wearing, and that just seems completely unnecessary now, I guess.
0: Totally, yeah, and it's, I mean, it's interesting to see how that, it mimics things that are happening in other, that have been happening in other industries, right, where, and, and, I mean, even, even in politics, right, the way that, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of crowdsourcing that enables basically for a a sort of streamlined um, yeah kind of recon process that then allows allows for the selling back of something Um, but then of course that's also what kind of begins to tip it over to the edge uh, towards uncoolness which then you know which then it it, it you know must be replaced by something else
1: yeah the algorithmicness of it all um yeah speaking of kind of the intersection between those things um i know like it just reminds me of aoc's merch drop a little bit because she uh like the drink water and don't be racist thing kind of just reminds me of it's like a twitter speak you know thing so that i think that's a point where we see um even someone who's not really necessarily completely aligned with uh the institutions were talking about using that same sort of recon, which is interesting
0: yeah and I mean I would say on the other side the um, the way that the the way that um the Republicans have kind of tried to um, appropriate you know when they discovered there was this kind of meme meme culture that was you know could be conceived of as sort of right wing or whatever and and then was like pro-Trump you know because he was sort of the meme candidate like there are there various attempts to kind of then kind of sell that back to the you know absorb that into the Republican Party to some extent and then kind of sell it back w- in the political messaging.
1: Mm-hmm. I something I've been thinking about a lot recently is how trad aesthetics have like proliferated out of the right and have become very trendy for people that are like leftists or part of like progressive or whatever you want to call it culture um and that's something i'm trying to like really like uh get to the bottom of and what i'm writing but it's so interesting
0: because you know in a sense it's kind of the ultimate ontological fantasy or something right of like um construing this thing as that you know as as trad is to to construe it as the kind of timeless essence that's been lost right that that can yeah. somehow be returned to so you know, the, the appeal of it is sort of understandable in that in that regard, but what's fascinating is it shows how a kind of flipping of the countercultural where where what becomes associated with countercultural is precisely the thing that the counterculture was originally posited as as um departing from or rejecting.
1: Yes, definitely. There's one quote that reminded what where is this quote if I can find it? Oh, this is from Baudrillard on fashion uh under the sign of fashion all cultures like simulacra and uh play like simulacra and total promiscuity um which this is something that i'm like experimenting with which is the idea that uh some of this tradness on the left that we're seeing is like a reaction um in part to the backlash against like cultural appropriation so people are kind of trying to source new uh reservoirs of like the exotic which I don't know how that relates to this quote exactly but it seems like uh for a while all cultures were playing like simulacra and total promiscuity and then people when uh we started kind of having conversations about cultural appropriation that died down a little bit so that seems like something that is going
0: on <laughs> absolutely I mean it's really the first Glimpse I got of something like this phenomenon. Well, I I can think of two, one that's more recent and one that's even older. The first would be, I remember all the discourse around normcore. And I feel like that was the first time that I was like conscious of the the phenomenon you brought up of how core is just appended as a suffix to everything. Um, And obviously normcore, you know, somebody like myself, who's like kind of, you know, somewhat like punk in high school and, you know, Um, was like listen to a lot of hardcore music and so I'm like I mean I remember that was the first time it struck me the the weirdness of this um, this kind of this type of subcultural formation that that is in this case about you know, creating an idealized version of the normie, right? Which of course originally was, was that which the subculture rejected. Um, so I don't know. Do you, I mean, I feel like that was what, five, six, seven. I'm, I can't remember when I first like became conscious of the whole norm core phenomenon, but.
1: Um, so I've been thinking about that a lot recently uh, because I have, it kind of ties into I think there's going to be some sort of, yeah, like, normcore revival, but it's not going to be like it was back then. Um, But just because people are more interested in, like, millennial stuff now. But I think that right now we're going to see something, which is, like, young people, some people, like, uh, uh, rejecting, um, like, alternification in general. And normcore was a very specific and calibrated version of that and i think we're seeing something a little bit different which is i think young people are interested more in the idea of like being basic um which has a a a different look than being a normie does or norm poor does but yeah i think that's come that's gonna happen
0: what is Um, the what is the basic look
1: well something that's happening with like you know younger gen Z right now is they are wearing like they're essentially wearing yoga pants but they're called flared leggings and that was the epitome of basic for so long um, and they're also doing things like wearing Uggs and wearing sweatshirts from the gap and stuff and these are like very um like aesthetically and trend-minded and alt-minded uh, young people and I mean, there's also this thing. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's like the Christian girl, Autumn. Have you heard of that?
0: No, actually.
1: Um, well, it's it's essentially like the epitome of like the basic Starbucks pumpkin spice white girl. And there's just like a lot of young people being saying right now, like this kind of slaps. Like I kind of like the way she dresses. So people are definitely, um, I think there is a side of like youth that's turning away from this, this huge blend of uh displaced and like confusing signs via clothes yeah. but then it gets complicated from there because like you're larping as like a basic christian woman which is funny
0: yeah i mean is there a way that is there a way that sort of being like embracing cringe becomes mm-hmm. a kind of sprezzatura or something where it's like it it somehow means that if, if you're not afraid to to embrace cringe then that somehow gives you a certain nonchalance yeah but within the within the kind of game of of social media one-upmanship you know makes you a, a sort of um weirdly you know makes you based or something right <laughs> via your cringeness
1: yeah i think that something kind of happened in the past year where like a bunch of like hot girls started posting like pepe memes online and stuff and that very much feels like leaning into cringe um and i honestly think when you know young cool people try to lean into cringe they're really trying to lean into like sincerity and like authenticity but they really struggle to do that um and so they do it in these very kind of manufactured ways like posting pepe memes or like going full christian girl autumn um, but yeah, definitely. I think people are rethinking how they can use cringe to their, um, to build their brand, which is interesting.
0: So it's, you know, it seems like we've kind of been, um, circling around this issue of subcultural proliferation, which I, I think I've been paying more attention to it recently. I feel like I wasn't, I wasn't very cognizant of it for the, of the, the, the extreme degree of it for quite a while. Um, and it does seem like, again, a kind of, um, you know, if we had to think about it I, in terms of the kind of classic, like semiotic approaches that we brought up earlier, you know, it's, it seems like the the traditional model is this kind of, um, this kind of um, unfolding of signs in this, uh, you know, diachronic or, you know, chronological mode where you have a season and it presents one particular style and then the next season has to, in some way, has to, you know, the signs there are defined in relation to the previous one. And then, so there's this kind of unfolding. And, you know, if you think about sort of high fashion, there, there's something like that kind of process. But then it seems like what what we see on the internet now, and I'm saying this as a, you know, only kind of a, a distantly informed person, but there's just this kind of, um, Synchronic, like laying out of all of the 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 the, pro- the possibilities proliferate, sort of um, all at once, kind of simultaneously, and are you know it's like each each unit in the you know in a kind of classic semiotic fashion, like each unit in the system is like defined in relation to other units in the system, and like only has value in relation to those, and then you know with each configuration that kind of creates a niche where another subculture can emerge like in opposition to or in, in kind of ironic citational relation to some prior one. Does that, I mean, does that seem like a, a reasonable model or does it need uh, updating?
1: I think the the model for inter- digital fashion is like yet to be defined, but I do think that I started this kind of line of work maybe I don't know. Well, I mean on TikTok, which is where most of these trends even if they don't originate there, they really develop there. I started doing that last April um and I had a suspicion I guess that uh that people were able to derive some meaning from what they were what they were doing there with the different aesthetic movements and niches, but no, i feel very hesitant to say that any significant meaning can be derived from it and i think that's essential for subculture um because i think like what does a subculture do if it doesn't give you a community and i don't think that uh most young people are finding actual community through these online aesthetics that are sometimes even by me defined as subcultures just like as a uh, a semi-inflated word um so yeah, I, I have a I have a hard time knowing because I think when I was in my teens, a lot of this was happening on Tumblr, so it was a bit slower, but I don't think I have ever experienced, yeah, this any sort of uh old fashioned subculture to compare it to, really.
0: Yeah, no, I, I totally see what you mean there. It's um so yeah it's i mean and it's very sort of simulacral simulacral in this sense right that mm-hmm. that it it sort of mimics the um the form in which a subculture uses a sort of collection of signifiers to differentiate itself but it's not actually grounded in anything beyond those signifiers for the most part it is yes. I, I mean specifically in, in it's not actually grounded in a well, in a coalescence of community is, is what you seem to be.
1: Yes. And also I think where people where it's it very confusing for people both in participating in these things and also trying to understand them is like that most of them are rejecting modernity in some way. Like that's what they're all about, which feels like, you know, that was often something that was a byline through line, not a byline, a through line through a lot of um, subcultures throughout history since like the 1950s um and so seeing that fall short um it yeah what you said about some is like totally correct because i'm just thinking you know the most discussed of the past year was probably cottagecore um and it's something that promotes this kind of like aestheticized romanticized agrarian lifestyle but um it is so it can't exist offline like you can't a cottagecore person uh isn't someone who's actually cottagecore is not going to be making tiktoks about it i guess so it's hard it's just very hard to uh see
0: yeah um this so there's a really wonderful book by um rebecca solnit who's best known for the whole mansplaining notion Mm -hmm. but this is this is much more interesting it's um it's a biography of Edward Moybridge, who um who was a, a sort of early innovator of motion pictures. Mm. Um so he developed a kind of before Edison, he developed basically a prototype of the movie camera. But the point one of the main themes of the book is the way that technologies kind of take us away from the world, origins, nature, but then what happened but then what they're used for is to project a kind of second order. Kind of image world that that kind of returns us to precisely what we've lost so her example is um the i mean so edward boybridge starts out as a landscape photographer in california in the um in the mid 19th century and so he's taking these giant photographs of the sierras <clears throat> and um so you know similarly to like painters in that period who were painting these giant sort of uh landscapes right and so people in cities basically wanted these images of like strong powerful nature like in their sitting rooms and so on and so you know there you have again this this kind of loop where like the most sophisticated technology of the period is being used as a kind of transportation means to take people back to precisely what they've lost right which is through sort of technological development which is nature right and so the that kind of double movement where the, the very thing that is like taking us away is then kind of channeled towards trying to take us back, but to this kind of dream space, second order reality that, that kind of spectrally represents to us, like what, what we've left behind or lost. Um, So that, that, that's what you were just saying is very reminiscent of that, that argument to me.
1: Yes. I, I think that, um, the cottage core example I used was kind of just because everyone knows about it but when you it, I mean it's really the the tradness of it all um that I also am like like if you're actually trad you're not going to be like doing this kind of flirtatious um like bread baking online I mean maybe you are I don't know there's lots of different definitions of it but um yeah so I I don't know if I have any faith and fashion to give the like sensitive wandering souls of young people um what they need at all.
0: Yeah. I mean and it's it's interesting how what you're describing is so it's so widespread regardless of kind of which um which subcultural niche or whatever you're mm-hmm. you're part of, right? Um because they you know, you can think about like well and here's another great example of some of what we've been talking about did you notice the whole um what was it i believe it was a budweiser ad that used the um uh reject modernity embrace tradition meme did you see this i did not see that but was that from the super bowl or um no it was i can't remember it was last year it was it was not that recent it was months ago okay um but no it wasn't from the super bowl i think it was like over the summer but it was, I, th- I think it was Budweiser, but a- anyway, I believe it was like a diet. And then like, the, it was like Reject Modernity was like the diet version and then the, mm-hmm. or the light, you know, Bud Light, I mm-hmm. guess. And then Embrace Tradition was like the original classic, which I mean, is such a, you know, it, it, it's such a good illustration of this, um, you know, partly the way that these, these kind of subcultural trends and, and the kind of, you know, I guess genuine longings that they might convey are sort of then channeled into the the sort of system that that then sells sells this fantasy back to us as as a product.
1: Yeah. Um, I think like one of the biggest L's we ever took was like the corporate corporatization of memes. And it was obviously totally inevitable, but it is very intolerable. Um and I, I guess there's really no way to, I mean, I'm not even like a meme. I'm not very interested in memes in general, but God, it really hurts to see those exist. So,
0: <laughs> you know, your, your current perception of as, as I'm, you know, to kind of try to recap some of what you've said, you know, is that, that a lot of this subcultural proliferation is, is kind of offering a, a pseudo, a sort of pseudo meaning, that is very shallow and evanescent and, and is not rooted in any, I mean, the differs from subcultures of the past because it's not rooted in any, um, any larger community or um, sense of genuine togetherness or belonging. Is that yes. a, is that a correct sort of.
1: I think that's correct. Summary?
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: think so. Uh, I also think that maybe something I've been thinking is like, Uh, in a lot of ways aesthetic resistance like doesn't feel like resistance um and i i think that that there was a and i'm saying like i i think uh there was an energy to subculture that is can't exist when uh it has to be represented through an image online
0: yeah so and that's that's why you know (laughs) In a sense, the, the most uh, representative ones are the ones that are, as you were saying with Cottagecore, like trying to represent the fantasy of something that would be entirely outside of that system, but is not be- precisely because it exists for that system and in it, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, you know, as I guess given that that perspective, um, I don't know, how how do you understand your, and this might go to the question of like, channels and you know media because obviously you're um creating these um these images these commentaries and these videos on on various platforms social media but also some you know publications um so you know how it if if your relationship to your audience is is partly a relationship to people who are maybe part of those or identify with some of those subcultures Um, you know, how, how do you hope to get them to see those things in a different way? And then perhaps how does, how does your more social media oriented work kind of relate in your mind to your, your published writing and so on? So I think with TikTok,
1: which is, I guess my most successful platform, I really try to present like very basic ideas because I know who my watchers are and they're pretty young people. Um. So, like, I'll introduce the concept that like nostalgia is like the most important factor in fashion right now, and then I'll kind of, you know, incorporate that incorporate that into different uh, themes. And then I also try to in- something I try to like convey to people that are younger, especially as we see fashion co- corporations um, rebranding to see seem more like socially responsible or diverse or whatever uh i always try to kind of point them away from the optics of like diversity campaigns and to look at like um how fashion is made i don't even mean that in focusing on like being like everything has to be sustainable because i think like as long as um people need to look good to proceed through the world. We have to have cheap clothes that are trendy, so, like, Forever 21, because that's what people need to, like, proceed through the world. But, yeah, I always try to direct them to look at um, the conditions through which their clothes are made. Uh And so, yeah, I just, like, to not be seduced by how corporations have evolved. Uh, and then in terms of how my... I, I feel... I definitely really like writing for publications but I think it, the editorializing of these kinds of ideas sometimes uh has its pros and cons. So I really just want to like I'm like always joke I'm like I just want to be a blogger um which feels very like millennial millennial core but um yeah I think I really just encourage like the people that you know ask me i guess even how to get involved in this stuff i'm like just pay attention to everything that's going around you going on around you and like write about it um and even if your ideas suck just keep doing it um
0: what was there another part of that question i've no i think that's i mean yeah i was i was sort of curious about you know presenting these ideas to different publics um yeah you know because i think in some my sense is in some cases you're you're speaking directly to the people who are the consumers of these trends and who are even the pioneers of them potentially. Yeah, it's kind of
1: hard to do.
0: Whereas Um, in other cases, you might be more of an anthropologist who's kind of telling these like mm -hmm. older people who like follow fashion, but like don't really know about TikTok or anything to, you know, what's going on among the the young folks.
1: (laughs) I, that, what you brought up is really great because I have this like very like, I really don't like when I read about gen Z led fashion that's written with this like like this like millennial chuckle to it like I don't even know how to describe it except that um it's just I guess this has probably always happened, but it's trying to describe the oddity of this phenomenon to um older people so it's very it's veryspecttaly and like I get that um but I think uh I definitely try to treat i yeah like i said i've said this a couple times i feel very bad for teenagers trying to negotiate aesthetic sensibilities right now so even if i think that what they're doing with like their different cores is like an utter farce um i still try to you like need to i think give them the leniency to figure that out on their own and then also maybe like here are some ideas that can help you work through it um is something, yeah, I try not to be controversial for controversy's sake when it comes to talking directly to, um, like, fashion-obsessed teenagers. Like, it doesn't seem, that's not very cool to me, like, pissing off teenagers, but I don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. No, that makes absolute sense. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's interesting, the whole, the point of millennial chuckle. I mean, you know, it does kind of fit into this larger history of how, kind of subcultural trends are represented, which is kind of a funny, and, you know, you can go back and find like the articles about like beatniks in the New York times or whatever from like the fifties. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, a, I mean, what, one thing that's different now is that, um, you know, it again, you know, similar to your recon, your urban outfitters recon example, like, you know, the, the reporters would have had to go sort of mingle with the, you know, mingle in the coffee shop or whatever. Um Whereas now they can just, uh, you know, start searching the stuff online and sort of report directly, you know, from their desk on it. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I assume that's like one of the I mean, and I would guess that encourages a pretty shallow reporting as well. A lot of the time. But
1: yeah, I think it's really just like. I think a lot of what it comes down to when I'm thinking about it is like it their work is too easily cut out for them like because it's so easy to um like I feel like in the past like if you went to some sort of gathering of like I don't know adherence of a subculture and you're trying to figure out what's going on they're not gonna be like hey like here's exactly what's happening but now because we have social media and especially the young people like Having recognition on social media is so important people are very much willing to go in depth about um, how they participate in this larger phenomenon which seems new.
0: Um, yeah that's interesting and in, I mean I'm curious because that that seems kind of at odds with like gatekeeping in the sense that it's often associated with subcultures where and you you know you can see this I think if you go back to like the, the original like 4chan, I mean, you brought up the basic thing, right? But like the, the sort of whole basic bitch meme, right? That there's kind of this like gatekeeping around like, you know, who defining who was in and who was out, um, and you know, kind of stigmatizing those who like tried to get with the subculture, but we're not really we're not really in the know. Um, but whereas this kind of approach of like, you know, almost like providing instructions or like here's how you uh yes. here's how you be one of us is is very at odds with that kind of subcultural
1: yeah I completely agree with with that um I think that gatekeeping I've been seeing a lot of jokes about like bringing about bringing back gatekeeping recently, which um you know I think there's something to be said there like uh subculture cannot like by definition belong to every variety of person um and I think that the gen Z mentality for a lot of reasons is like um making every alternative identity as inclusive as possible. And I don't know where that
0: leads because I I just haven't figured it out yet. But I wish them well. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean it well, it seemed to suggest a certain, you know, it, it maybe it's part of the sort of rapid obsolescence where as soon as it becomes a big tent, it's somehow, you know, it it, it already, you know, it's time to move on in a sense. Right. I mean, in, in the way that, yes. I mean, like the, I, you know, I often think of this line from do you, the film with nail and I, I haven't seen it. You know, it's, it's kind of about the end of the sixties and like, there's a line that towards the end where somebody says um, that, you know, they're selling hippie wigs and Woolworths, you know, which is kind <laughs> yeah. of the, like that moment of like the lowest barrier to entry. Um. So, but that's obviously also the moment when, when it's time to move on to the next thing. Um so yeah
1: Yeah. I think that uh maybe the the utter inclusivity tactic probably accelerates that and then leaves young people with the sense of like hey this was my thing and now I don't feel connected to it anymore um so
0: it's very sad and it it sort of militates against the the formation of community potentially right um Hmm.
1: but I will say I do understand with some of these things like with like cottagecore I know it was like um a lot of it was like lesbians and queer people being like hey like I actually really am interested in these domestic historically feminine uh activities and this is a way for me to get back into it. So that seems nice. Um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for those for for those like marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I guess the, there's a lot of sub factions of these subcultures which is confusing for yeah, community
0: purposes. So I'm curious how this, um, you know, in in a sort of fisherian sense, I think this would always have to be a political phenomenon as well. In other words, that that the the kind of ontological return and the the way that the past predominates over the present is is the you know still the condition of capitalist realism from his perspective. And so, but, so, so there's that dimension of it, but then there's also, um, you know, and so there's a lot, you know, part of what it means to be, to be drawn to the, to all these kind of fragments of the past is, is the loss of a future, right? Um, So, but at the same time, I'm kind of interested in how this, and this goes back to one of the Baudrillard quotes where he says, you know, basically the, you know, the 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 logic of fashion um, infiltrates everything from science to politics to art and so on. Right. So, you know, it, it does seem to me there's a kind of parallel phenomenon in political um, spheres where, you know, you have all of these political tendencies that really turn out to be highly, I mean, fundamentally, subcultural but in in the same kind of shallow way where they're not they're not really building you know there's this famous um account of like uh of why um you know sort of things like the civil rights movement relied on this notion of strong ties whereas like internet communities are for the most part formed around weak ties in in a sort of sociological sense so so the you know these subcultures are are weak tie-based ones, right, rather than strong tie-based ones. So anyway, my point, my point being, um, there are these kinds of political phenomena that seem to be very um, they're always about going back to something. I mean, when you brought up this idea of like idealizing uh the you know, 2014 or something like that, I was like, well, that's basically Biden, right? That's that's pretty much like <clears throat> we need to go back to the Obama administration in a sense as, as something that can become a compelling enough message. Um, So it, you know, so even the most normy people politically get caught into this kind of nostalgia, you know, which I I would more associate with say like the left fantasizing about like Mm -hmm. these sort of, I don't know, Soviet images of like the idealized (laughs) worker or things like that. Um, But you know even the sort of most normy mainstream politics is like invested in this this you know rapidly um improvised fantasy image of this idealized past which is just the obama year like <laughs> it's just like the second obama term um so yeah. so there's a parallel to that you know fashion trend i would say in political realms but um I, you know I, I imagine you've you've thought about this um this resonance as well so
1: well, the Soviet, like, pastiche thing is, like, really something, something, but in terms of, like, the Millennial core thing and the nostalgia for the uh, Obama era, I actually have not thought about that that much, but I know that, um, so I was speaking with one of my friends, Sam, recently, and we were talking about uh, the millennial core phenomenon, which is, in a way, people trying to access this like hipster like hedonism that kind of followed the 2008 recession. Um, which I don't like. I I think that was happening then. Like the if the we called it like the Project X era. If you remember that movie, um, and we were kind of talking about like whether or not uh, people. In trying to replicate that mood, which I think is in part like a reaction to a, like, you know, political correctness and like cancel culture, like just really wanting to party with no uh, limits and stuff and be really grimy. But like, can people like access that same like fucklessness anymore? And uh, it seems like there's too much like lethargy there and also too many... uh kind of also fake, but also real uh, limits that people put on themselves because they don't want to behave poorly. So I think that's definitely a really interesting connection there, is like, I do think this very... There's like a, a lethargic nostalgia for kind of a more like reckless and chaotic time, but that also, in the political sense, was... I was very young then, but yeah, it's been rendered as a stable and like smooth time i guess politically
0: how do you understand like the main impacts of the um <clears throat> pandemic era and as they've sort of manifested in the realm of fashion and sort of online fashion
1: um so i think the first wave of that was definitely this look back to trapness which was like with cottagecore and dark academia and people trying to like you know bake sourdough all the time and And that kind of evolved into this like these people kind of evolved some of them into this like pseudo Catholic aesthetic, which is very much similar to that. Um, Like a a, very much like a longing for uh, a meaningful framework of understanding the world, et cetera, et cetera. But right now, I'm still pretty, I'm still pretty determined that the next thing is going to be um, people leaning into this like trashy party. 2009 like whatever aesthetic um, and that I guess kind of ties into how people are like the roaring 20s are coming but I do think that because it is a mimetic attempt at that like it, it's it's not going to have the same uh, needed I don't, I don't think it's going to be the same but I, I do think that's what's going to happen next because of the pandemic
0: Right so I mean it's just sort of improvising here for a bit i mean it's it's interesting that on one hand we have a i don't know if you saw saw that new yorker cover of like the like the woman at her desk with the the sort of messy apartment and the you know glass of wine and so on so i mean it's it's interesting to me that on one hand we have that sort of you know which everybody could see and recognize immediately as the you know a sort of aesthetic encapsulation of like the the COVID era and then on the other hand we have a culture that's you know, has become intensely attuned to hygiene, um, right? So there's this odd way that, you know, on one hand you have the messy apartment and then on the other hand you have this fear of sort of unclean spaces um, and, you know, this kind of heightened hygienic sensitivity. So, I mean, I'm curious how those sort of interact in the...
1: Yeah, well, I I guess... Like I said, my my kind of point of reference is like the skins phenomenon, like the which may have been pre recession, but in like Project X, um, which is very much about uh, like not caring if you die in a way. And I don't think that we can create those environments uh, the same or the same way we used to because they're always going to have people that are going to have. Um, you know hesitations about that now and you know it, but then that also creates like another act of you know rebellion and resistance through partying which is like yeah i'm gonna you know um drink share this like molly water with someone who i don't know uh as like a form of resistance in a way but yeah it's not uh the conditions just aren't there i think unless it's like, like a miraculous <clears throat> cure but i don't think that like that seems like it's ever going to happen in that way.
0: Yeah, cuz it's interesting in that you also have the opposite thing of like everybody, you know, the kind of messy athleisure trend and so on, you know, presumably has to just by the sheer logic of this sort of differentiation, like it has to produce some kind of counter effect where where there's sort of a a counter trend at some point.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um athleisure is like really don't like it for a lot of reasons, but I think, well, I mean, the bimbo phenomenon, I think, very much is a reaction to that because it's all about high femininity and high glam. And, you know, even if you're wearing, like, athleisure, you're wearing a matching, like, Juicy Couture pink velour tracksuit with, like, full makeup and, like, cleavage. So I think that people are also looking to, like, beyond this kind of understated um very new yorker-esque uh athleisure they're like wait how do we make this like really jarring and also i mean people are imbuing the bimbo uh trope with a lot of additional significance right now anyways but yeah they're definitely trying to like bring glam into their lives
0: absolutely yeah (laughs) um so I don't know. We we should uh, think about wrapping up. I did have one other trend that, you know, it's very, um, it's weird. It feels like it was such a dominant sort of cultural specter in my early adulthood. And now it seems as if it's almost completely disappeared, but it it really rehearses a lot of what we've been talking about in more recent times, which is the hipster. So, you know, the hipster was just something that everybody talked about in the, in the aughts. Right. And the term just flew around a lot. And, you know, it, it was, I think of it as sort of a pre-social media moment, but kind of the last, it was kind of this weird here. I mean, I'm just giving my take on it. It was kind of this weird pseudo subcultural kind of in the way that you're describing um, phenomenon, because it wasn't subcultural in the way that, you know, older subcultures were like, it wasn't rooted in, in deeper, um sort of tribal affiliations it was really more of a a set of affectations but it kind of had the trappings of the subcultural and then it it just became this thing that everybody was supposed to hate but like hating on it was precisely how you should reveal that you were one and i don't know i mean what is that you know as coming from a younger generation who is maybe not like I, I don't know what your cognizance of it was in the sort of heyday of that moment, but um, I'm just curious how it how it looks to you now and sort of what your sense of it is.
1: Yeah, well, I remember like, definitely the hipster is like extremely culturally important. I think especially in defining the difference between Gen Z and millennials, because I always remember being like, well, I can't be a millennial because like I'm not a millennial and like gen- and like I'm not a hipster, even though I had kind of these all, like, indie affectations in the way I dress and stuff, but I was like, I'm not a hipster, like, I'm, like, I'm too young, you know? Um, I think when I look back on what it seems like hipsters were doing, it seems like they were really trying to, um, there was, like, an emphasis on, like, a kind of curation. I mean, like, the, the quintessential, uh, like, tobacco pipe hipster, because there's so many different variations, but there was definitely an emphasis on curation and i think gen z taking the same mentality of the hipster has uh they have like this tendency to like lean into chaos in a way that uh feels like i think i think that type of millennial was trying to find a way to just, like self-optimize through the chaos that they were experiencing in their lives and like downward mobility and stuff versus i think the type of the Gen Z version of that is like leaning into the chaos and um, layering on a ton of different looks, whether that's all at once or just like rapidly cycling through them. And um, I think they're, yeah, they're much much less focused on endurance and timelessness. And I think that was part of the original hipsters sentiment.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, going back to the, the political parallel or, you know, sort of substrate of it, you know, it, it was in a sense, a kind of, um, I mean, I would see it as a kind of aesthetic Fortis nostalgia where a lot of it had to do with going back to, you know, basically my grandparents' generation and kind of, um, you know, borrowing these, these, I mean, and literally like buying objects from thrift stores and so on that the later then could be resold in more expensive vintage stores Um you know, that uh, pertain to that generation. Right. And, and so that, and that was the, you know, I, this is like pretty cliched at this point, but you know, it's, if you think about American politics through my entire adulthood, like basically the right is obsessed with the the supposedly more stable culture and social norms of that period. The left, the left is obsessed with the um, better economy for working people and sort of more egalitarian tax code and things like that. So everybody is sort of in some way, Um, their politics are defined by some kind of sense of loss um, from that era. So that's a very Fisherian sort of point. But, um, but then the hipster kind of rediscovers all of these, um, these sort of signifiers of that, of that period. And, um, you know, often ones that are like, you know, I mean, anticipating some of what we talked about before, often ones that might even be kind of frumpy or in some way, like not, not cool in the way that, I don't know, people in the 80s or 90s might have thought, Um, but, you know, kind of something you can turn into cool.
1: Yeah, I think that a big difference I see there is, like, that seems like a, a search for, like, the idea of quality and things being of a quality that was not produced in America or wherever at that time, which, like, we think about like American apparel and stuff. That's what that was getting at. Um, versus Gen Z has this like try to. Uh, it's like it's like they are trying to take some sort of larger resistance against uh, this era by being like, oh well, we're going to like thrift everything and we're going to buy everything on Depop and we're going to make our own clothes and stuff like that. Um, but it's not a a search for lost quality or, like, I didn't even think these people think, for the most part, that these eras, like, were better. It's more just like this this kind of, like, frenetic uh, rapidity that I think is Gen Z's, like, version of the um, millennial looking for something or the hipster looking for something of, like, perceived quality, even if it was, like, ugly and frumpy um though like gen is like still has like ugly and frumpiness sort of but it's there's a there's a hypersexuality about gen z fashion that i don't think or gen z like alt fashion that the quintessential like is would you say like the quintessential hipster woman was like zoe de chanel
0: that feels like yeah i think that that's i mean yeah it's i don't know i find it hard to think about quintessential but yeah i mean i think that that sounds about right yeah
1: yeah, I think yeah, probably at least in the mainstream, probably that's too people were looking to. Um And I think yeah, there's no there's there's no parallel with that kind
0: of. I mean, I guess cottagecore and stuff, but it's still still thoughty. Right. I mean, yeah, there's sort of a decentering there as well, which you know that another thing that differentiates the hipster is like you know if you think about the transformation of Williamsburg, you know, it's still like, you know, like the subcultures prior to it, but also very unlike them, I would say, because it, you know, I mean, it's highly associated, it was highly associated with gentrification. Right. And um, if you think about how, I mean, I remember it like, because of my age, I like, I really, like, I do remember Williamsburg when it was just, you know, uh, there, there was kind of an art scene, but it was not, um, it, it was not even close to what it was like 10 years later and, and how that, that cycle by which it, um, it sort of uh, transformed these areas of cities. Um, and, and it was weird because it wasn't, um, you know, it, it more had to do, as you said, with kind of curation, right. With finding mm-hmm. these spaces that you could kind of fill with this particular aesthetic um, sense of, you know, sort of objects representing this particular aesthetic sensibility. Um, but because it didn't really have any like that deeper values or sense of, <clears throat> of, um, you know, what kind of community it wanted to create. It was just pure grist for sort of hyper, hyper development and um, attracting think, wealthier and wealthier people and so on.
1: Yeah. Also, there was something about the hipster aesthetic that I think one of the reasons it perished the way that it did was something about it was very rife for like, and I don't mean this in the literal sense, but like being a pervert, because I think that a lot <laughs> of the kind of, like, hipster icons of the time, like Carrie Richardson and stuff, Duff Charney, they were all, I mean, they were, they they were literally quintessential, like, hipster men. And they were all swept away by, you know, Me Too allegations and the like. Um, so I think that perhaps uh, they, yeah, I think that is something, yeah. And, and Gen Z is like, very particular about, like, sexual misconduct and stuff but also, um I think that I mean this is really tangential, but like men are taking note of that and curating their aesthetics
0: differently um the hipster mustache uh <laughs> phrase which which was literally like bringing back the kind of porn i mean there was kind of the porn aesthetic right the like one i mean, I feel like there was this larger umbrella of the hipster, and then there were kind of these different like fads within it, but like one was definitely the sort of seventies porn look right which yes. <laughs> which which was definitely kind of leaning into that
1: um yeah, per, yeah. that sort
0: of pervy <laughs> quality
1: which I definitely think people are gonna I think people are gonna lean back into that with like the whole millennial revival but like I said it's still going to be another step removed because people are we're opposed to, like me too so people are going to be like very cognizant about their perversion being utterly superficial instead of like actually being perfect
0: (laughs) yeah so i don't know the way i the way i thought about it was just um you know it it seemed like when i was you know when i was a kid like in the 90s you know there there were these pre there were these very clear kind of subcultural models from earlier periods where you basically had you had like the hippie you had the beatnik and then you had the hippie and then you had the punk right Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you had various, like, slight variations on those, but those were kind of the archetypal, like, subcultural figure who was in some way, you know, defined in opposition to the mainstream or normies, right? And then in the 90s, you started to have that, you know, what Fisher discusses, right? Basically, the kind of total blending of of subculture into, you know, marketing and and commercial Mm -hmm. culture. So... Um, and people's essential acceptance of that, and then like when the hipster emerged, it, it just seemed very odd because I mean, for a, re- a few reasons. One, because it, in some ways, was kind of I think anticipating some of what you've been describing. It was it was grasping at these signifiers of, in many ways, of the kind of mainstream culture that the sort of earlier subcultures were against. Um, and then it was also, um, you know, weirdly, as I said. Had not it 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 had a kind of hollow core it just it it didn't have some kind of um deeper kind of political sensibility that um that that seemed to be motivating it it was it was really just as you said a kind of curatorial project but at least at that moment it it still feels like there was a kind of center you know that that you know you could actually like physically locate in certain spaces and cities and so on and that's you know there's still some of that but the whole phenomena that that we've been discussing that that your work examines just you know it seems partly different in that completely decentered quality.
1: Yeah, I think that I mean everyone just like when you're talking about like physical center people just like really make fun of all cities now in a way. Like I don't know if that makes sense, but I think the hipster thing really made people have like a very funny opinion of New York which probably they had before um but yeah, I'm I am curious about where if these I mean, I, I think the only one I see right now is like in, in fashion is like Copenhagen. People it was like Berlin for a second, but now people are very obsessed with this like Danish pastel thing. Um so I think it still exists, but it's more it's very like uh very superficial. Like it's it's just the idea of the city. It's not actually moving to Copenhagen to participate in this lifestyle or fashion um it's something else I wanted to say but I can't remember what it was before that
0: yeah no I I just I mean well it's also interesting that a number of the phenomena we've been discussing are are actually about fetishizing or creating this kind of fantasy image of of non-urban spaces right whether it's like the whether it's like the idealized like campus space or the the cottage you know rural um sort of village space or whatever
1: Yeah, and that does have, like, a very... So, like, the first subculture, technically, for most people, is, like, the Teddy Boys in Great Britain in, like, the 40s. And they were kind of... They, like, dressed, like, Edwardian dandies and stuff. And so there is always this kind of, like, uh, subversion of aesthetics that are associated with, like, power or tradition or authority. But... it, it's the subversion and this subversion is very uh, it's like weak wristed. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, and maybe just as a final thing, this whole theme of sort of fashion from above versus fashion from below is kind of something that we've been coming back to here and there. And I'm just curious how you, how you see that today. Um, You know, obviously there's this intense cycle that we've discussed by which, um, you know, these, these sort of, um, styles that are disseminated potentially kind of semi-spontaneously in these spaces are are immediately kind of recouped and then kind of sold back in some sense so i'm just i'm curious like you know if we think about subcultural styles right a lot of them did have to you know they were you know this is kind of the history of them right that there's fashion from below of some sort that that involves like taking some of the existing signifiers that are being disseminated or were at an earlier time and kind of recup- recuperating them and turning them into a, a kind of new, new language. Um, but I don't know, it, it just seems like, again, with the churn and the, the sort of acceleration we have been discussing, it's probably more complicated to try to figure out what's, what the relationships are there.
1: Yeah. I think that when I think about this, I was thinking about the um, like 100 GACs, the music duo because they very much have this like synthetic s- synthesizing so many different eras of music um but in terms like i feel like from above versus below with fashion like i said um i think that Gen Z does have a particular way of um combining like distinguishing elements of different subcultures from the past and I think that, you know, that feels like probably special and important to them in some ways. And so I think uh, by br- uh, making that so much of making that so online, I think that, yeah, more fashion is coming from below. Um, but it's not good. It's like bad, in my opinion. It's it's not democratizing fashion. It's just uh, literally like lending lending one's hand to the the greater power that is the fashion system um so I think that yeah it's it's and I think that yeah people are going to become resistant to that in some in some way but I don't know how yet
0: well I think you will be a good person to follow as you know (laughs) things continue to evolve so I will definitely be uh, continuing to follow your stuff and uh, I hope my listeners will uh, check out your Instagram at Mark Fisher Quotes, TikTok at bimbo theory, and your website, sherbert.biz. Um, yes. And just, yeah, I think obviously a lot, you know, a lot more is going to happen. And uh, I think you'll you'll be a, an insightful person to uh, have as an observer of all those trends. So yeah, thanks, well, for, thanks for talking.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the pod and for talking to me about all of this.
0: Um, no, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.